Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Michael Coffee with me here today, and Michael is with StackSource. So head over to StackSource.com for some information about what he and his team are up to there. But if you have been tuning in for a while, we had the CEO of StackSource on the line not too long ago. So that was episode 385. But Michael has a ton of experience regarding lending in this in the commercial real estate world. So we're going to demystify that process. So Michael, I really appreciate your time here today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So give us a little background, Michael. I know you've been in real estate investing for 20 years, and I'm going to guess that it's probably 21 or 22 since the publishing of what I read, but. It is, and I don't like to think about it too much, how long I've been been doing this, but about 22 years now, I started off working for a small commercial real estate brokerage that did both residential and commercial. So I, that's where I got my start was residential. There was an opportunity for me to move into a position with the commercial group. And I took it because I love numbers and larger projects. That was the appeal at the time. And I started off there basically as an analyst packaging loans, getting them ready for the lenders, coordinating with all the various parties and really working behind the scenes to make sure that whatever was brought into the company was actually able to be executed and close. After 10 or 15 years of doing that, I moved into more of an, an origination role. Where I was out creating my own business and getting loans and the reason I bring up that history is because the keystone of my, my career as an originator is finding deals is all of items I learned over that 10 or 15 years of all these issues that popped up during the process, all the different places deals can get snagged or hung up. I learned creative ways to solve those issues and really to avoid some of them as well, which is better. So I've applied that in look whenever I analyze a commercial transaction, I'm thinking through, okay, what are the issues we could, that could pop up here and what can we do? So we, that's been a keystone for me. And then now moved over to StackSource this past year and have really thrived there using that tech platform which what it does basically is you enter the deal into the platform and then it auto matches with lenders to give you the broadest range of capital sources that you can find. Sure. Well, is there any involvement then? Or do you have something to do with the algorithm there to help source these providers? We don't. We have an, an extensive database that has the last count 30 points of data where it can match up with lenders. Where I step in is, tip, and most of my client base, they're, sent, they're emailing me the deal old school, and then I will go enter it in on the platform. 
there's a write-up we do an overview that that is key to i think to the presentation to the lenders but we look at the deal make sure hey do these numbers make sense again what are some potential problems oh the properties have vacant and we're basing all our numbers on a pro forma i know you know this these five lenders they're not going to do that deal we i do dive in very early into the numbers of the loan and what the client's expectations are. I like to interview the client and find out, is this a renovation play? How long do you think you're going to hold this property? What are your expectations around the financing? That sort of thing, just to try and gauge what it is they're actually looking for. And then we, I can tailor the match to those types of lenders. Okay. I, before we hit record, I mentioned that a majority of our listeners here are going to be really have some experience with residential real estate investing and residential loans. Could you help us bridge the gap there? Because I'd like to demystify that the concept that hopefully you can explain it to the point where it doesn't seem as daunting as I think people might think of it. I think there's this might be one of those barriers, actually, that prevents people from trying to get into commercial lending, commercial real estate. Yeah, absolutely. It's there. And I do work with a, a lot of newer investors. So we do have quite a few conversations around, am I going to qualify? And here's the basic difference is in residential, the lender is looking at you as the borrower to remake, to make that payment. So they're going to look at your income, your credit. They don't care as much about the property and if it makes money. So if you're buying a fourplex, for example, they're not as concerned about the cash flow. A lot of the lenders, most of the lenders won't even calculate the real cash flow. They have their own guidelines they apply to it. But as long as you make enough money in your W-2 job or something like that, they don't care. So they're going to make that loan. In commercial, so you go from four, you go into a five unit, so now it falls under commercial. Yes, they do care about your credit. Yes, they do care about your your global cash flow per se, but their primary mechanism for getting paid back is if property generates enough income to not only cover its expenses, but to also pay the mortgage and leave you some profit at the end of the day. So that's the base basic difference between residential and commercial is how are they expecting to get paid? When somebody is going for commercial lending, could you advise them as to what they probably should have ready and available so that it just makes the process easier? Yeah, I would say having having a personal financial statement put together, it doesn't have to be very elaborate. You don't have to go to your CPA to do it. What we're looking at when we initially screen a deal is we are looking at what are your assets, what are your liability to come up with a net worth. And the more detailed you provide, so if you say, hey, I've got a million bucks, but 800,000 of that is retirement, there are some lenders who don't consider retirement as a liquid reserve. So if you can line item out where your assets are, that really helps in screening that to make sure we end up again at the right lender who's going to who's gonna give you a fair look. So having that, any real estate you own listed out so we can see what you own, what your equity position is in it is very helpful. 
But beyond, that's really all we would need on you at the outset. The most important thing is to know and understand what you're buying. If the listing agent on that property has a flyer or an offering memorandum, that is key to provide upfront so we can really look at how much income does this generate. There's no sense in going through a, an extensive underwriting on you as the borrower if the property you want doesn't make enough money to warrant a loan at the leverage that you need it. And then earlier you mentioned taking a look at the property and trying to identify to make sure that it's it works, right? Do you Does your platform provide that type of feedback or do, is there a person involved? How does that piece work and what are some of those things that are red flags like right away that people could say this is an obvious issue? Yeah, we every loan is screened by a capital advisor like myself, and we will look at the data provided and make sure that the numbers make sense for the loan that you're asking. So if the property does not generate a lot of NOI, operating income, but you need a loan at 75% LTV because you only have 25% that you can put down on it, we're going to catch that very early before it goes out to any lenders. And then we can help advise. I had a gentleman looking at a beachfront property that's a mixed-use retail and residential. And we looked at that based on the purchase price the seller wanted. I could really only get maybe 55% loan-to-value and he was really looking to be 75, 70 to 75 on it. So he was able to go back and I think they're still negotiating with the seller on maybe adjusting that price. So we can help advise there as well. Yeah, no, it sounds some pretty valuable information, especially when you're dealing with pro formas. You mentioned earlier that it almost, it, it, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but sometimes I think pro formas are more fiction than reality. So what would you suggest people get regarding this property? Because that's, as far as I'm, the performance is pretty much just marketing material. A lot of it is. And I have seen some really hilarious performance in my time put out by brokers that, that really missed the mark. So applying my 20 plus years, I can look at a performance and really break down, okay, is the income they're claiming real? I'll usually go back to find the actual because most lenders are going to lend on assuming it's a permanent stabilized property and not renovation or rehab play. If it's just a stabilized multifamily asset, for example, they're going to take the in-place rents as of today, not what market should be or, hey, we, we're going to have rent increases that go into, inf that go into effect three months from now. So, you know, we're using that income. Now they're going to take what's in place as of today. And then on the expense side, there's a lot of expenses that lenders apply that some owners may not, especially on a smaller property where you're going to self-manage that property. We still apply a management fee to it. We still apply some admin costs. We're also going to add in a reserve for capital improvements. And there's certain standards that we typically see on an appraisal. And so I add those up front to make sure that the 
information or the pro forma that I'm providing to my lender is, as you said, it's not fiction. It's more real. This is attainable. You earlier, you also mentioned that thanks to your experience, you've been able to avoid or help people avoid some of the pitfalls that can pop up. Can you go into some detail there? What are some of those pitfalls or some of the more common scenarios that you've run into that people could just proactively avoid? Yeah, I think the most common issue we see is when reviewing the seller's profit loss statement, not really diving deep into that statement and seeing what those numbers are. The most common example out of that would be the repair and maintenance section of a profit loss. We typically see if, if let's say an owner has renovated three out of his 10 units this last year, because of the tax rules, he's allowed to write off those costs. He can write them off in that, in the, as a maintenance item, right? He doesn't have to amortize it out. What they'll do then is they'll instruct their manager or they will do it themselves. They'll just lump it into their maintenance costs. So if I'm looking at a P&L and I have this expectation that, hey, maintenance should be about, call it $750 per door per year. That's my benchmark. And I'm seeing this one and it's coming in at $1,500 per door as an average. I'm going to say, hey, what's going on here? Does it, does it really cost that much to maintain this property or was there some work done? And invariably what we will find is that, yeah, there was some work done. So we can do some work ahead of time to try and tease those numbers out. And as we say, we move them below the line. So we'll take those out of the operating numbers and we'll create a capital expenditures list. They list out, hey, we replaced the flooring, we did painting, we had place all the fixtures, the cabinets, what have you. And once you do that now, the numbers look a lot better. If you were to just turn that P&L into a lender, you'd probably not get the loan proceeds that you really wanted because they're going to assume that it really does cost that much money to maintain that property. So that's probably the most common issue. The other one is really just not being aware of how your lender looks at or underwrites a loan, it varies greatly across the different lending types. So they have a debt service coverage ratio guidelines. Some lenders will use an inflated rate to mitigate risk. Other lenders will use the actual note rate. Some will use a 25-year amortization just for underwriting purposes versus the 30-year amortization that you're going to get. And all of that will impact your final net loan proceeds. So if you know that going in, if you've got a, a tight deal that underwrites, we probably would need to steer away from those lenders that, that underwrite very conservatively. You've mentioned a number of these numbers that can vary. Do you find that a lot of the mom and pop self-managed, some of those numbers can be a bit more off because they don't maybe value their own time. They don't put that in their P&L, like, like some corporations, some companies would with, with actual staff. Yeah. And it does create, especially when the appraiser is looking at those numbers, because the appraiser has to include a management fee and it's usually based on a percentage 
of the income. In that case, and it is common again with the mom and pop stuff, is that he'll, the mom and pop will underwrite in, or they'll add into the P&L, I've got my cell phone bill, I've got a, a cable at my house, I'm going to under, I'm going to write off that stuff, right? Because I'm using it for my business. But if you leave those in the P&L and don't, don't remark on those, the lender will naturally add that to the management fee that the appraiser has come up with. So now you've got even a much larger management cost. So we will typically go through and I will earmark those items, say, hey, this is self-management, self-management. So that the lender knows, hey, this is all going to go away once this new buyer comes in and is using a professional third-party management. So it can get tricky with those situations. So just a reminder, everybody, head over to stacksource.com for more information about what Michael and his team can do for you. But Michael, based on what we've said, talked about here so far, it sounds like that we spend a lot of time on the show talking about the importance of networking and building your team. It's the only way we can scale in this type of business. And you're really positioning yourself to being a team member because you're talking about taking some of these numbers from the Proforma and a variety of other sources and putting together the complete story associated with this property and then presenting those to the end lenders. I would could you give give us a little advice around what type of questions we should be asking when we're considering adding a team member such as you? I would say experience matters, track record matters. When we're when I'm in discussions with new lending or capital sources like a lender, I always ask them because they'll tell me, "Hey, we'll do this. We'll do that. Here's our guidelines. Here's our lending matrix. We can do all this stuff." We're hot on multifamily or hot on retail, whatever. Some of that can be fluff, right? But the way to cut through that is say, hey, what, tell me about your last five closed deals. What are you actually doing? Not what do your guidelines allow you to do, but what are, where are you guys very active? To me, that's much more telling about where they're really at. So experience, I would say availability is also key. I get calls on the weekends. I don't always take those calls during family time, but you do need to be reactive as a team member, especially when the market's hot. If an investor's out looking at property, he comes across a flyer, he knows hey, if I don't get on this, I'm going to get beat out on my offer. So I ask my investors, hey, send me the flyer. Let me look at it. It'll take me 10, 15 minutes to go through it. I can tell you with a, within a range of what I think we could do on the financing. That way he doesn't get caught up in making an offer and getting two, three weeks into the process and maybe even having outlaid some cash before we find out, oh, we can't hit your lending requirements. Mm-hmm. So availability and experience, I think, are key. Looking for a little validation on this next thing is that we've been told time and time again, when we're trying to do any kind of lending in general, we should be targeting or working with some of the smaller lenders in our market. Do you find that's the case on the commercial side? It can be. What I have found is that the smaller banks and credit unions, if 
they can change quickly. So if they offered one thing last month, if they get a bunch of those types of deals in, they may say, hey, we got to, we can't do that anymore. We need to do, we need to go this direction. We see those guidelines tightening up and loosening them up over the span of a year quite frequently. So it can be helpful if you have a relationship with a bank. Sometimes that's a great place to start. But I would say the more sources that can look at your deal, the better you are positioned to make a good decision. There are so many factors in a commercial loan that that matter more than, say, the rate. That's the big one everyone looks at. Hey, I got the lowest rate. But if we, if you're planning on holding a property for just five years, and then you want to trade up into something bigger, and you get a 10-year fixed with a seven or eight year long prepayment penalty, you're going to be real surprised when you go to sell in that five years. So there's some other things to look at besides just the rate to make sure you're getting the terms that truly fit what it is you want to accomplish with that property. So again, I think that's one of the reasons I made the switch to StackSource is we have a large database with national and local lenders. I'm interviewing lenders constantly, adding them to our database from, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm adding these very small lenders into our database to make sure that when I have loans that they are, or inquiries in, that I'm shopping it with national and local sources. This has been a great conversation. I, one of the one of the other questions that, that I would have is that you mentioned the size of the property at one point. Is there any difference regarding the underwriting process as you get into larger and larger projects? Yeah, yes and no. I, the fundamentals are the same. What changes though are some of those standard numbers. So as you get into a again keeping it in the multifamily world, if you get into a larger multifamily project of 30 plus units, you have to start looking at, hey, I'm going to have an on-site manager here. Or at least, and maybe I won't, the market would dictate that I should. So my appraisal is going to come in with an inflated number. The lender will probably underwrite in. I know California has got some rules around that as when you have to have an on-site. So lenders are they're aware of that and they will underwrite that in. So I think it, where you see the variance is more with the lenders that play in that field. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have a multifamily program and they have certain underwriting guidelines and standards they use. Those are going to vary much differently than if I'm looking at a smaller credit union or a smaller bank or even a lender with a national platform. They can, they can vary greatly. Okay, great. Michael, this has been a great conversation, like I said, and head over to stacksource.com for more information. But Michael, I have a few rapid fire questions if you're ready for them. Let's go. So first of all, we've all seen the late night infomercials promising the world when it comes to real estate investing. What real estate investing myth would you like to bust here today? Well, I would say, and I know there's going to be people out there that have done this, but the whole idea of no money down in commercial is, I think, for the most part, a myth. 
you can definitely raise capital in other ways through friends and family and whatnot, borrowing against you, leveraging your 401k or your retirement or stocks or whatever. But truly coming in at 100% loan to value is extremely rare. And chasing those deals down, you could, you're probably passing up numerous great opportunities while you're doing it. Sure. A rich dad, poor dad is off the table, but otherwise, what is one book everybody should check out? I've been reading a lot of mindset books lately as we enter into a market and a, hopefully not, but potentially a recessionary period. I think keeping your mindset focused, it to me is key during these times. So I'm reading right now, The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy and creating habits and behaviors that are going to feed into my long-term goals. So that's what I'm focusing on. Oh, good advice. What is the biggest business mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? The biggest mistake I've made, I think, and this is relating to deals early in my career of focusing on things weren't important and not being open to other possibilities. We call that majoring in the minors, focusing on something that didn't end up being that big of a deal. Meanwhile, there's something festering over here that's an issue and it's not getting addressed early. So what I learned was to look at the whole picture and being aware of all the different pieces that play into putting these transactions together and not ignoring anything. And that this could possibly be related, but if you could go back in, in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? It would be set goals. I think my younger self was just doing and doing indiscriminately. I think if I had I hate this term, but buckled down and focused myself earlier. I think I could have propelled myself much further. Yeah, I think that's, if I had set goals and really figured out how do I get there, not just, I have this goal of being a millionaire or whatever it is, but what are the specific steps, short-term goals I could do to get there? I think that would have made my journey much, much simpler and less stress. Michael, this has been a great, again, it's stacksource.com. But Michael, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today? Yeah. One thing that came to mind was having realistic expectations. I see a lot of investors jump in saying, hey, I'm going to I'm going to get in there and I'm going to renovate all these units. I'm going to be able to raise the rent by $300 per door and do it with at max leverage. And I think taking a step back and listening to experts in the field and really tempering expectations and being real about, okay, what is the real potential of this property? There's a lot of data out there now through CoStar and other sources where you can find out, okay, what's the real rent projections for this area? What's happening in the economy that could impact that? Are we headed for an employment crisis? Are we all those different factors that play in? Because what we don't want is someone to get into a property and not be able to hit their expectations and not succeed. Hitting your business plan is key. 
So we need to make sure that business plan is reasonable. It's amazing how many people don't take that to heart and actually go through that exercise. Of I just run into a lot of people who take real estate investing as almost a hobby or they throw it under that hustle, side hustle. Yeah. And they don't treat it as a as an actual business. Yeah, very true. Very true. Michael, this was great. Again, it's stacksource.com. I'll make sure to have those links in the show notes, but I hope you'll come back again sometime. And, uh, we'll dive a little bit more deep on the mindset stuff you're going through. Yes, that would be great. I love talking about it. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.